You're listening to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today our guest is David Rothkoff. He has a brand new book, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal, From Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. I highly recommend it. David is the host of Deep State Radio and CEO of the Rothkoff Group Media and Podcasting Company, former CEO and editor of Foreign Policy Magazine. He's a prolific speaker and author, and he is a former senior official in the Clinton administration. He certainly knows what he's talking about. Welcome, David. Thank you for passing judgment with us. It's my pleasure. Let's begin at the beginning. You have a very provocative title here. And you title your book, obviously, Traitor. I imagine you didn't choose that lightly. I know you define this at the end of Chapter 5. What is a traitor? Well, in the simplest terms, it's someone who betrays their country. Technically, you could be a traitor for betraying an alliance or, or a friend. But specifically in this case, it's somebody who betrays the country. And one of the reasons I picked it is, uh, which you'll appreciate, is that A lot of people have used the term treason pretty loosely, including the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, And the term treason is certainly something that might cross your mind if you saw a president who was uh, actively collaborating with a foreign enemy. And the Constitution defines treason as aiding and abetting or providing comfort to an enemy. Uh, But the courts have determined that that means uh, a country that we are in a state of war with. And we're not in a state of war with Russia, so you can't use the term. And so what term captures the egregiousness of what he's done better than traitor? Uh, And uh, frankly, it's not just one kind of betrayal. He's betrayed the country to our enemy, uh, but he's also betrayed the country in terms of violating his oath, placing his own interests ahead of the country's interests, not preserving, protecting, and defending the Constitution uh, with regard to um, corruption, placing his financial interests ahead of the country, or with regard to COVID, placing his own personal political interests ahead of the country, or he did the same thing and got impeached for it. I want to talk about each of those examples. And you explain in the book so well, and you have a great piece in USA Today that just came out, why we can't use the word treason, even though President Trump, of course, does because we're not technically at war. I should just say we're not at war with Russia. Now, this is something else that you explain, and I'd like you to just flesh it out for a moment. What's the difference between a really bad leader and a traitor? Well, let me go back to one one thing you said there, because I think it's an interesting point. Um, uh, and that is, we're not in a state of war with Russia, but we live in an era in which countries can be in conflict without being in a state of war. Cyber war allows countries to be in conflict all the time. And in fact, what happened here was that the Russian uh, intelligence services use various cyber techniques to undermine democracy in the United States. You could call it an attack because it was an attack. But the Constitution and the law have not caught up with the reality of modern conflict. So I, I just flag that because I think it's an interesting point. Um, you know, bad leader is somebody who may pursue bad policies, um, may not have good leadership qualities, may uh, not be able to mobilize support for his ideas, may respond slowly, may, I mean, you know, you can come up with lots and lots of reasons why somebody might be a bad leader. But 
The distinction is that a traitor is somebody who betrays the country. But, you know, the presidency starts with an oath. You know, they pledge to preserve, protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. And if somebody violates that oath and does so to aid and abet a foreign enemy, um, that's as egregious as it gets. And in fact, it has never happened in American history until Donald Trump. I love the way you talk about the difference, and it's in such stark contrast. This is not a matter of degree. Being a traitor is just a qualitatively different thing. And you really lay out the case, and then you put it in historical context, and you brought up something that I think is so important where you said, you know, we're not at war in the old sense with Russia, but that there are new ways to think about war and there are new ways to think about conflict. And that brings me to a quote you have at the beginning of chapter five. And I have to say, reading it late last night, it felt chilling. It's from former former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Take it from someone who fled the Iron Curtain. I know what happens when you give Russians a green light. And you talk in the book about the original sin of the Trump administration. So can we begin at the beginning with this original sin? Well, sure. Um, although we're not 100% sure when the original sin began. You know, Donald Trump began having uh, contacts with, with uh, Russia while it was still the Soviet Union in the late 80s, had contacts throughout the 90s, wanted to do business there throughout the 90s. They were clearly... Um, keep an eye on him during that period. That's just the way they worked and continue to work. Uh, but of course, things things got a lot more intense and interesting when Donald Trump decided he was going to run for president. While he was doing that, of course, he was reaching out to the Russians saying, by the way, I'd also like to build this tower in Russia. I reached out to Putin about that. And um, and so that created certain kinds of contacts and, you know, other contacts were overlaid on that, including the fact that Paul Manafort, his campaign manager, um, was working directly with a guy who has subsequently been identified as an active agent of Russian intelligence. So you, you actually had, you know, the campaign chairman, who, by the way, was beholden to uh, uh, Russian uh, oligarchs who in, in turn were beholden to Putin, who had this kind of extraordinary relationship. And, you know, when you look at it, take a step back without going through every single detail of it, you know, the, the Mueller report, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which is a bipartisan group, you know, they, they've identified something like 270 uh, different kinds of contacts, 40 meetings, 33 people in the Trump administration that were involved in those meetings. And what we saw just as individuals was striking in and of itself. The president reached out to the Russians and said, I'd like you to help um, the you know get Hillary Clinton's emails, help us get this information. The Russians did that. People associated with Trump uh, interacted with them throughout. They actually actively sought damaging information from the Russians. And then when the president became the president, we saw this extraordinary behavior where in the first instance, he maintained back-channel communications with the Russians. And then in the next instance, he sought to obstruct the investigations into his ties to the Russians. And he uh, sought to vilify um, the Central Intelligence Agency and the 
uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation and others who would seek to investigate this, go, you know, in, in culminating in this extraordinary press conference he had in Helsinki, where he essentially said, look, I'm standing here with Vladimir Putin. I believe him. He says he didn't do anything. I don't believe the CIA. I don't believe the FBI. We don't know what else he said with Vladimir Putin because his conversations with Putin uh, aren't aren't notated. Uh, there's nobody else in the room. Uh, but we do know this. We know that you know, when um, uh, the foreign minister of Russia came and visited Trump early on, uh, you know, Trump happened to pass on classified information to him. We know that uh, Trump uh, 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 has given deference to the Russians in a whole host of areas from letting them do have their way in Syria in a way that a U.S. president might not have to pulling out of the INF, uh, Inter- Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, w- which you know, gave the the Russians more wiggle room in terms of their nuclear forces. The president has attacked NATO, and I think it's quite clear, many observers believe, that if Trump were reelected, he'd pull out of NATO altogether, which is a Russian goal, and on and on and on. So he embraced them. He interacted with them. They helped him. He rewarded them. And then, you know, you have this kind of smoking gun also that, you know, Mueller identified 10 instances of obstruction of justice associated with this. Since then, there have been many more. And, um, and, and you know, presented the case, and it was absolutely clear. You know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, legal s- scholars across the country said, no, this is, this is a violation of the law. And you have to ask yourself, why do you do that? Or maybe we don't, because you use the word extraordinary a couple of times, and I agree. And when you lay it out that way, it is, you know, we know it and we live it every day. And you talk in the book about how do we not normalize this, but it is extraordinary to just hear it. And what you explained, which I think is so important, is that this is not just amorphous. This isn't something that, you know, happens removed from us. This has real impacts, real specific impacts on the voters. And we could go through, I mean, I could spend hours with you going through all the examples you use in the book, but I'd like to focus on one of them. You talk about President Trump's campaigns of disinformation. Could you highlight that a little bit and some examples of how that demonstrates his traitorous behavior and how it impacts the lives of voters? Well, sure. It, it impacts the lives of, of, of American citizens in a variety of ways. Remember, although uh, Vladimir Putin is backing Donald Trump, what Vladimir Putin's goal is not to you know enrich Donald Trump or make Donald Trump's life better. He, he is very narrowly focusing on what he perceives as Russian national interest, and that involves weakening the United States. And one of the goals of all of their disinformation is to produce division in the U.S. So in the 2016 campaign, that included fanning the flames of racial division in the United States, fanning flames within the divisions within the Democratic um, Party, uh, creating um, stories that might or might not be true, but might undermine the credibility of those in authority or undermine the credibility of the media, which is, of course, a fundamental goal of disinformation programs, which is to make it so that you can 
speak a lie and and no one will ever be able to tell the truth because they don't know what to believe. And that has, of course, been a, a hallmark of, of Trump's presidency. No president has lied more. Um, you've had the extraordinary development in American history where, you know, the media organizations are hiring fact checkers, you know, that CNN has Daniel Dale working for them because every time Trump gives a speech, every time he speaks, often when he tweets, he lies. Um, the the Washington Post has a team on this and they published a book and, you know, there were 20,000 plus instances of Donald Trump lying to the United States. Well, some of those are self-serving lies, but a lot of those are lies that pick up on or directly regurgitate um, Russian intelligence d- disinformation. And a perfect example of that is, of course, this nonsense that has to do with Hunter Biden, who, by the way, is not running for president. Um, but they have, you know, they went to Ukraine to get stuff on Hunter Biden, which came to them via folks in the Ukraine with direct ties to Russian intelligence. And um, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who was the, uh, I use the mastermind term kind of loosely, yes. um, but, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who was the guy behind all of this stuff, had as his sidekick in the whole thing, somebody who also turned out to be um, an actor of Russian intelligence. And, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, if you'll allow me this interjection, is Every single day there's an outrage. Every single day there's mm-hmm. something new. Every single day we, we we get distracted from this fact. And also every single day, Donald Trump and those around him say, hoax, 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 hoax. Well, it's not a hoax. This all really did happen. He really is tied to our most aggressive enemy. It's never happened before in American history. It has damaged us in manifold ways. If he is reelected, it will damage us again. And I just thought, look, unless you call it for what it is, unless you use the bluntest language possible, unless you lay out the case in a short book, not in a long book, in a book that people can go and take in and put it in the context of history, not in the context of current politics, then we're not going to realize that what we are living through is something that no American leader in the past ever anticipated happening, that a disloyal, self-serving, valueless person, a corrupt person, would become the president of the United States and would work with foreign enemies in order to advance his own interests to the detriment of the entire country. Yeah. And that that's never happened, right? That's stunning. And yet we're so numb that two months ago, Bob Woodward revealed in his book that Senator Dan Coats, a Republican, a rock-ribbed Republican of Indiana, said the only conclusion that he can draw is that the Russians have something on Trump. Otherwise, you can't explain his behavior. And we were like, oh. And then there was another story the next day. Imagine at any other time in history, if the director of national intelligence questioned the loyalty of the president of the United States. Everything would stop. To me, we have we have to sort of shake ourselves into awareness of what's really going on. 
It is relentless. And as you say, I mean, this is part of the point of disinformation is that you just get numb to it. Part of the point is that you just creates chaos and it sows confusion and a shameless plug here for some of our other episodes where we focus just on what campaign disinformation is. And we've talked to people who are full-time fact checkers because as you said, we didn't used to have that. We now need to have that to act as a guard against what's happening. And I do think one of the big contributions of the book, uh, which again, thank you for writing it and making me lose at least an entire night of sleep as a result. Sorry Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it could happen uh, regardless, is that you don't just talk about everything bad that's happening because we live that so viscerally on a daily basis, but then you put it in historical context, as you just said, and I think it probably is time for us to move to that other part of the book, which is not just Trump is behaving badly, but again, that this is not quite like what we've seen. And you do talk in the end of the book, you talk about American resilience, but if you could, I'd like to give a couple of examples of other situations where we have had Americans who act in traitorous ways. I know you talk about Richard Nixon Benedict Arnold, Aaron Burr, Jefferson Davis, I could keep going. But is Richard Nixon a good example? Was he the latest and greatest president behaving badly before we had President Trump? Well, I think that's a a fair question because it comes to, to the issue of behaving badly. I think there have been presidents since then who have behaved badly. I think Nixon comes up because he um, violated his oath to the Constitution, and also, frankly, before he was elected, he did get involved in a scheme to delay or undermine solution to the Vietnam War to benefit himself, a little bit like Trump's Ukraine scheme. And that's as close as we've recently gotten to a, a presidential candidate uh, coloring outside the lines and and trying to you know sort of game the international system in a way that helped him. But Richard Nixon was nowhere nearly as bad as Donald Trump. And I say that knowing that Richard Nixon, I think, was a a felon and a racist and a bad guy and paranoid and a whole bunch of other things. But in terms of what his violation of the public trust was, not even close. You get closer when you get to people like the ones involved in the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis and all those around him. But none of those people were president of the United States. And that's one of the extraordinary things about this. Trump is in a position to do a massive amount of damage. He can just say, I'm changing our national security criteria. I'm granting national security clearances to people who don't deserve it. I'm putting political loyalists ahead of the Directorate of National Intelligence or 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 in the head of the CIA or the head of the State Department, and I'm going to have them pursue, you know, my personal agenda uh, and suppress. Um, issues that 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 might call into question my behavior internationally. I'm going to quash whistleblowers. I'm going to quash inspectors general, um, and so on and so forth. And so that you know, he what what Trump has been able to do is not just betray the country, but then twist the apparatus of the executive branch of government to serve his betrayal, to protect him from being held accountable for his betrayal. And to do so in ways that that you know produce great damage to the standing of the United States and 
and ultimately to the functioning of our democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, you know, th- think about this as just a, as a fundamental. In 2016, the president of the United States sought and received the help of a foreign government in intervening in the U.S. election. Every intelligence community member acknowledged that the Russians were were doing this. So, you know, you would think that would be a threat to democracy. We we know that they sort of got into voting machines and other things. If if they could game that, democracy's over, right? President managed to get the Congress of the United States not to allocate more funds to look into that. He got his government to say it wasn't a problem. We are coming into the 2020 election completely unprepared for a replay of this, so except for the, you know, sort of I think heroic efforts of a number of career civil servants to reject what the president's trying to do. Um, but but anyway, I, you know, you were talking about history, and I've gotten sort of off the track by just saying that he's different from what happened in history because he was a president. Well, but that's important because he has a different level of power over our lives. And as you also just mentioned, he has power over the people who are supposed to be the adults in the room. I mean, Congress and the Senate have not acted as a guardrail, from my perspective. They have not acted to protect us. And you mentioned, you know, the few civil servants who have come forward and said, there's something wrong here. There's something uh, that's not okay, that's a fundamental threat to our country. But you do have um, some optimism, and you have a recent deep state radio episode where you say, and now for something different, some optimism. And one of the things that struck me in chapter seven is, again, you talk about the resilience of the American system. If President Trump is reelected, do you think that our country has enough of, is our, the structure strong enough for us to survive for more or perhaps more than that, years of President Trump? Or does something just, does the center no longer hold? So I really apologize for you not getting enough sleep last <laughs> night because you're, you know, you're just rejecting out of hand the optimism. But, but yeah. no, I think it's, I think it's a legitimate question. Um, I, 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 and, and I think it's a question that no one knows the answer to. Donald Trump reelected Donald Trump not needing to ever seek the approval of the American people. Donald Trump protected as he has been by a corrupt attorney general and by a Senate that said, essentially, you know, you're, you're never going to be held accountable. You know, if you take the office of legal counsel doctrine that a sitting president can't be held accountable, and then you combine that with an attorney general, who's going to um, interpret every finding in a way that's favorable to the president and quash investigations into the president and uh, even pursue the enemies of the president. And then you get a Senate where they say, nope, you know, you, 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 you know, you, you violated bribery laws, but we're not going to hold you accountable for that. Well, then the president's above the law. And it's not just that the president would be above the law. It would be that the worst man who has ever held the presidency, a racist, a misogynist, a tax fraudster, um, someone who is corrupt to his core, a lousy businessman, a person of no character was above the law. 
you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's the perfect storm. And he's sponsored by a country that wants to see the United States falter, to have its leadership as a democracy question, to have its functioning as a democracy question, to have the country weakened, to have other countries rival it for leadership, whether it's the Chinese or countries in Europe. That's a formula for a kind of fall that we've never seen before. Uh, and that's why I think the election on November 3rd is an existential challenge for the United States. Because if Donald Trump wins re-election, if Donald Trump wins re-election and the Republicans hold the Senate, we will not emerge four years from now a healthy democracy. And in fact, we may not emerge four years from now as a democracy. I wish I could disagree with that. But as I talk to my students about this and I say, you know, the Trump administration, from my perspective, is really a stress test on the Constitution and on our norms. And what we've seen is the Constitution does not really envision that everyone will behave, quote unquote, badly or in a traitorous manner in this case. The Constitution envisions that we shouldn't trust anyone too much. That's why we have our system of checks and balances and that there'll be some bad behavior, but not this fundamental breakdown. As you said, it's the president, it's the attorney general, it's the Senate. And it does, I agree with you. I don't know how at the end of four years, if there's a second term, uh, the country comes out of this looking at all recognizable. But let me ask another pessimistic question based on a more optimistic scenario, which is instead, Vice President Biden is elected and he is in fact inaugurated. Those are of course two somewhat separate issues. There's still a large percentage of the American public that supports President Trump. How do you move forward? How does what advice would you give to Joe Biden if he's elected in terms of creating and strengthening that system of American resilience? Well, I think the advice has 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 two different components to it. One of them is 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 an instinct that Biden has and I think is right, which is you have to reach out. You have to say to those people, look, the president was screwing you. You know, you had your uh, your tax cuts that benefited the rich. They didn't benefit you. You uh, have seen the first economy since Herbert Hoover that has lost jobs. Um, you have seen 230,000 people die of COVID and perhaps another 200,000 more because the president specifically chose to ignore the science. You have been hurt. You who are his supporters have been hurt. I will take steps to help you, whether it's creating jobs or ensuring that you have health care coverage or preserving the environment or whatever. But I think that the other big job of work that is involved here, which is a, a, is a step beyond where Biden may be initially comfortable, is that the guardrails have got to be restored and the flaws in the system have got to be fixed. Uh, and that means that we have to have ethical standards for presidents that we haven't had before, and they have to be enforceable, and we have to ensure the independence of inspectors general, and we have to ensure, we have to come up with a better um, special counsel law that allows there to be truly independent counsels that can investigate the president. And we have to do away with things like this Office of Legal Counsel ruling. The president cannot be above the law, and we have to ensure that our um, uh, country cannot sort of fall in the thrall of 
of a minority in the way that it is. You know, the Constitution has got some fundamental errors in it. Um, and one of those errors gives much more power to much less populous states so that by 2030, a uh, third of the population is going to be, uh, or 30% of the population is going to like 70 of the senators in the U.S. Senate. And I think that creates a, a real imbalance. And there have been people, people with a lot of money have come in and said, look, I can address the narrow interests of this minority and I can win within the system and advance my own goals. And 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 sometimes those moneyed people's goals don't even align with that group, but they've taken advantage of that. And so I think we need some constitutional reform. Clearly, the judiciary has been packed for the past four years yeah. with nearly 300 new judges, the Supreme Court with three judges. And we have to tune out the rights assertion that rebalancing and right-sizing that system is something other than what is essential. It's essential. Otherwise, this plays into this notion that the president and, and, and the party in power can place themselves above the law and can undermine democracy. And, you know, we've seen that in the past couple of days in a very disturbing way where, you know, the, the court has sent some messages that suggest if this is a close election and it comes out against the president of the United States, they might put their thumb on the scale. Yeah. And you mentioned some really important solutions, uh, which I think is really important for us to talk about moving forward. You talked about the anti-majoritarian institutions of the Electoral College and the Senate. And let's end the big part of our interview with a quote you have from Alexander Hamilton in chapter one, where you say, the first duty of society is justice. And so I hope that we will follow your recommendations and I hope we will do that justice and have the opportunity to do so. These are some really heavy topics. And as loyal listeners of Passing Judgment know, we like to end with a little bit of levity. We think that's a good thing in these times and it keeps us sane. So I end the podcast by asking my guests the same three questions. We learned a lot from you and now we want to learn a little bit more about you. Question number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you like to invite to a dinner party? Oy. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to how to offer an answer to that that is not um, sort of fatuous, you know. Um, I guess it would probably be somebody like Shakespeare, who I'm just curious. I'd be curious to meet and try to understand the connection between a human being and that kind of level of genius. Absolutely. Question number two. You're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal. What is it? Well, this is a big question that I've struggled with a lot because I'd like to be stranded on a desert <laughs> island. And I, I think in the end, all really good foods are around, you know, like pizzas and hamburgers and cookies. And if I could just sort of say round foods, I think that would be a really, you know, good at solution. But if I had to choose between pizzas and cheeseburgers, I don't know if I could do it. I'm, I don't know if I'm up to that. Probably right at this moment, it would it, it would end up being pizza. We've never had a geometric answer to that question. <laughs> well, I've obviously given this too much. Thought. Not at all. Uh, and last question, 
You get one superpower for an hour. What is it? Gee, sleep soundly? That hasn't been happening much for the past four years. It it might be nice to uh, to do that. I, I it's not to say that's better than leaping tall buildings in a single bound or or you know being bulletproof. But at the moment, it sounds like a superpower. As a fellow insomniac, I will take that one. You can find David on Twitter at djrothkopf. His brand new book, Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump, is published by Thomas Dunn Books and is available at your favorite bookstore and online. You can hear his regular musings and those of some other fantastic guests on his podcast, Deep State Radio. You can follow them on Twitter at Deep State Radio, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. David, thank you so much for taking the time. Now I know you are both low on sleep and very busy, and we appreciate you passing judgment with us. Well, I think I was raised by my parents in New Jersey to pass judgment on everything, but but uh, I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed this chance to visit with you. Thank you to our listeners. We're so grateful for all of you who are tuning in, and we will see you next time. Bye.